Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign from scratch that you can run for your group as soon as tonight. I also run what we build here for my game group, and we share those results every other week. As you very well know by now, season two of this show is all about the Fallout role-playing game, so if you still need a copy of those rules, head over to your local game or bookstore or check out the Modifius Entertainment website at modiphius.net. Before we get into building new stuff this week, well, you know the drill. We need to recap what we built last week. Last week began with the group working on the second job off the board, which, for those of you who might not remember, read, If you're good at extermination, I've got caps for you. And they got the address, which was an old Catholic church about 11 blocks south of Diamond Pass. When they got there, they met Walter, an old gentleman who'd been protecting and repairing the church with 11 of his friends until various attacks left only Walter. He tasked the group with heading into the church to eliminate the nasties contained within and offered a decent amount of caps to do it. The group did a lot of battle with feral ghouls, glowing ones, and mole rats, and maybe a rad scorpion or two, depending on your style and or mood. And when they were done, Walter paid what he promised, and the group was on their way for the third job on the list. That one, in case you need a reminder, said, We'll pay well for a case of Nuka-Cola Quantum. If you've got one, see Sylvia at the Twisted Top in the Central West End. The group had a number of possibilities to search, buy, trade, or steal bottles, but they ultimately got that whole case put together, and they delivered it to Sylvia for caps. She also seemed to be rather impressed with the group, so they've also probably picked up another source for jobs. And we pick up this week with the group ready to take the fourth job on the board. That one reads, Supplies needed. See Martin at the Lime Ferry for more details. So, this is going to require another trip down south, and it's going to have to actually go farther south than Lime. And it occurred to me when I edited the adventure that sent the group there the last time that I wasn't entirely clear about Lime's location vis-a-vis Diamond Pass. I said in that episode that it's south of downtown, but what I should have said is it's technically not in the city of St. Louis, but rather in St. Louis County, and there's a difference there, as the city of St. Louis isn't located in St. Louis County. Long story, don't ask. And to be truthful, the group's going to go even further south than they've gone before, because the Lime Ferry crosses the Merrimack River between St. Louis County and Jefferson County. Tell you what, why don't I just do the history lesson here, then we can just build and game away. All right, so there's a road in the metro area that goes by a number of names, Lindbergh Boulevard being one of them. It manages a snake all through the area and also picks up a number of different state highway designations along the way. We're specifically going to deal with one section of this long road, which is called Lime Ferry Road, and it was named for the actual Lime Ferry that used to cross the river before the bridge was built in that area. The section starts right around the city limits for Lime, and the Lime Ferry name drops at the city line for Arnold, which is right across the Merrimack. The area on the northern side of the river has gone by a multitude of names over its life, but we'll use the name it goes by at present, which is Oakville. What all this means for you is that the group will need to head down Lime Ferry Road to hook up with Martin at the Lime Ferry, since the ferry is apparently up and running again between the counties. 
Now, that leads to this question, which is what does the group know about South St. Louis County or Jefferson County for that matter? That's going to depend on you and your group. If you've got a local in the group, they'll know Arnold took a bunch of nukes in the attack as the defense mapping agency had a headquarters there. So from a tactical standpoint, it made sense. It's also known that the radiation levels in that part of the county are still fairly high, even after all these years. That also being said, there are rumors of people living in the old city of Arnold, though most folks have never seen anybody from there. It should also be added that the group is not going to be aware of the ferry. They do know there are a couple of ferries that cross the Mississippi, plus a few more that cross the Missouri as you head west, but that south travel isn't something that's typically done from here, so they won't have much knowledge about it. They can choose to hit up some of their information sources, and you can decide how much of this information they can get, as well as who they get it from and how much it costs. There's a group of fanatics, or weirdos, depending on how you want to present it, who've set up their community around the old defensive mapping agency. In other words, they're living in the middle of still active radiation. As you might guess if you're a veteran of the video game, these are the children of Adam. And those who have information will also admit they've never actually dealt with them. Rumor has it that two groups have set up small communities on either side of the ferry crossing. Normally that wouldn't be news, but the two groups each want the other's land, so they've got a real Hatfield and McCoy thing going, and they're always looking to buy supplies from someone. Martin is a fellow who figured out how to take advantage of the situation. He's rigged up a makeshift ferry boat and manages to get supplies across the river to the competing factions who try to outbid each other to get the gear so the next round of fighting can begin and they have an advantage. And that's the most information the group can get. This would also be a good time to remind the group that the job posting doesn't say what supplies are needed, so they could decide to pick a few things up and hope for the best. But the smartest option would probably be to go see Martin at the ferry, figure out what he wants, and then head out to collect it. It'll take the group about five and a half hours to make the trip from the dome to the ferry. Of course, we can't make them make this entire trip without something happening. So let's get to it. About the time they get to Lime, which puts them an hour or so down the road, they hear the bubbling from the man-made river to pair. I'm not going to do a history lesson on this one, but let's just say in our time, it doesn't have the best of reputations. We'll just leave it at that. Whether the group reacts to that or not, they'll soon have some trouble on their hands, and that trouble comes in the form of six Meyerlurks who bust out from the river and seem to hone in on the group. The stats are on page 345, so have at it. Remember, if the group gets themselves into a supply problem, the bird's eye view is only about 15 minutes from where they are, so they can go and resupply themselves. I'd also argue that it's reasonable they'd get a deal on their gear, which means the prices would start about only 15% above book value. A couple hours later, they'll run into their next issue. As they make their way past more abandoned buildings and destroyed homes, they'll hear the buzz before they see the source. They are hit by a swarm of stingwings. The stats for those are on page 353. I want to Set this up with two more than the number of members of the group, but if you're not feeling that good about your group's chances, eh, drop it by a couple. Once they get through the fight, they're clear the rest of the way to the ferry. Now, depending on what time they started doing their walk, it could be starting to get dark. 
doesn't really matter to me because if your group doesn't mind moving around at night, then neither do I. Now they can smell the river before they see it. The sulfur smells coming up from it are almost too much for the characters to take. Though once they take a moment or two to catch their bearings, they can manage it. They notice the small wooden shack on the bank. I mean, there's a large bonfire out in front of it, so it's definitely well lit up. They also pick up the dozen machine gun turrets spread out around the perimeter, since they become visible about the same time as they hear them snap into a lock on them. They'll hear from inside the shack a voice call out. Y'all need to identify yourselves. Otherwise, I'll let the turrets take y'all out, then I'll just sell your gear later on. Ultimately, it's in the best interest of the group to just tell Martin why they're there. They can be cute if they want, but he's not going to put up with it for very long without unleashing the turrets on him. These are machine gun turret MK1s, and the stats are on page 377. Martin eventually comes out of the shack, though it's his combat shotgun the group sees first. Martin himself looks like he couldn't be any older than 15. He's barely 5 feet tall, maybe 100 pounds, and his shirt pants and boots seem way too big for him. His mousy brown hair is unstyled, so it looks all wild. When he realizes the group is who they say they are, he lowers the gun. I'd offer y'all seats, but I've only got the one for me. He reaches back into the shack and pulls out an old wooden folding chair and sits in it. A moment later, he gets into what he needs. Look, I've got no issues getting supplies from this side of the river to deal with the groups on the other side. The problem is that I have customers on this side of the river that want meat from animals you can only find on that side. He further explains that he tries to deal with the warring factions across the river, but they can't provide enough meat and skins to fill all the requests he's got. So he needs folks going to go hunting for him, and that's where the group comes in. The majority of his orders are for ragstag meat and hides. He needs as much of it as the group can deliver to him, and he's willing to pay 75 caps per ragstag's worth of meat and hide the group can bring back. He'll note that finding them shouldn't be too hard, shooting them shouldn't be either. There are two issues. The first would be the levels of radiation that they'll be dealing with while they're over there. So long as they don't stay for an entire day, a few doses of Radex should be enough to get them through until they can collect enough meat to make the trip worth it. The second issue, that's the one he's got the most concern with. The Lagerfelds, who are one of the two groups he deals with across the river, act like they own the area that's the best spot to hunt ragstags in. So unless they want to waste time looking for a better spot, they might find themselves dealing with a few of the family. And that is something Martin tries to avoid at all cost. He does acknowledge that there are children of Adam a bit further south, but he also notes that they shouldn't be an issue since they just want to worship the bombs. Weirdos. Now, he'll offer up that if the group's wanting a big challenge, he's got an order for Yao Guai meat. He knows they're dangerous as all get out, but with what his customer is offering to pay, he'll gladly pay the group 400 caps for the meat and skin of one of them. If they feel crazy enough for more, he'll go 200 caps per, but he still needs a lot of ragstag meat, so please keep that in mind. If the group doesn't have Radex or Radaway on hand, Martin does have some to sell, and yeah, he's going to sell them. I mean, after all, until or unless the group comes back with the requested meats, they're just customers. Radex doses go for 50 caps per, and Radaway goes for 90 caps per. If by chance the group doesn't have enough to buy one of each for each member of the group, he will toss in one dose of each for each group member, 
meaning that each member of the group should have one dose of each. If they can afford to buy it, they don't get it for free. The only other thing he needs to do is get them on the ferry and across the river, but he won't do that until morning. And he says that that's because those Lagerfelds and Mitchells are what you might call weirdos. They do some really strange stuff out in the woods at night. Don't know what it is. Just heard them insult each other when I go over to trade. So I'd not be over there after dark if I was you. Plus, there's a whole lot of other stuff out there that can mess y'all up. So you'd be better off being able to see it. And he holds firm to that. He tells the group they can camp around the fire and he notes the turrets will protect them while they sleep. Now, it's not quite dark yet. The group can fiddle around their campsite if they want. Regardless, Martin heads back into his shack and he doesn't come back out until morning. The evening goes without incident, though I'm sure the group would be almost constantly on guard. This would be a good opportunity to mess with them a bit, if that's your style. You can do it with noise and assumed movements just far enough away to not be noticeable. Of course, the noises are more like the breeze blowing through the trees, and the motion is probably squirrels or some small harmless creature. But when you're all hyped up for something to go wrong, everything seems like it's a big, bad, ugly, and it's about to eat your face. Morning arrives and Martin is ready to load the group onto the ferry and cross the river with them. Now, when most of us think of a ferry boat, we think of the traditional paddle boats from Mark Twain's writings, or we think of the more modern steel ships that can hold cars as well as passengers. This ain't one of those. It's essentially a slab of metal with a wood floor bolted to it. There are no rails and Martin uses a long pole to guide the raft across. Insofar as the size, this is where you'll just have to scale it to your group. Regardless of the size of the group, it'll be just enough to get Martin and the entire group on it, plus about an extra square feet for the meat and skins that they should be bringing back. Now, if you want to add some more drama, have the raft be small enough that only half the group can cross at one time. That'll leave half the group on the north side of the river, though they'll still be well protected thanks to the turrets. The half of the group that lands on the south side, however, will be exposed until Martin gets back with the rest of the group. And while the river isn't huge anymore, it still takes about 20 minutes to get it across, which means that with about five minutes or so to load and offload, half the group waiting on the south side will be waiting for about 45 minutes before the group is all back together, which gives us an opportunity to ratchet up the tension a bit. Let's set the scene on the south side of the river. Where the raft drops the group off, the land is relatively flat. Some of that is because it's some of the old riverbed, since the river did dry up a bit after the bombs dropped. However, there's also a part of it that was always that low, so there's a good 600 yards or so of level ground for the group to be on. After that, there's a slow rising hill that takes them to the south. That's where the group notices they're being watched from. In fact, they realize there are two groups watching him, with a group on either side of the old Highway 6167, about 20 to 25 yards away from it. There's not a lot of movement or action taking place, but it's very obvious that every group the move makes is being watched. So, the group could and should be feeling a bit anxious while they wait. This should also drive how the group reacts once they're all back together. Or, if they all crossed at the same time, it should drive what their first moves will be. 
Now, according to what Martin told them, the hunting grounds they'll be looking for are to the south and west of where they landed, and he would have told them to just follow 6167 for about a mile or so before cutting west on the old Highway 141. From there, it'd be about two miles to the prime hunting spot. That means the group will need to go past the two groups eyeballing them, which means we have the opportunity for an encounter here should we choose to do it. We're not going to build one in here, though, because we've got some interesting stuff coming up. However, the group will notice that the half dozen or so folks on either side of the road are definitely giving them the hard once over. And the group will also notice that those individuals are wearing gas masks or goggles to cover their eyes. And the reason for that would be the radiation exposure. Now, the rules don't really get into exposure to radiation, but if you've played the video game, you know that if you're in areas that are still producing it, you'll take some radiation damage, and the amount you take depends on the severity of the radiation. So this means we're going to homebrew some rules to cover this. After we use them for this adventure, we're going to stash them away somewhere safe for future use. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to rate the severity of radiation in an area on a scale of 0 to 10. Obviously, downtown St. Louis and the areas they've been to to this point have been a zero, so they haven't had any issues. 10 would be the most severe, and it would be the type of area they wouldn't want to spend longer than five minutes or so in without the protection of power armor. So here's how the damage works out for the exposure. And I'll get Gabe to post this chart on the website so you can print it off if you'd like. Level 1. For every hour you're exposed to this, roll one die for radiation damage. Level 2. For every half hour you're exposed, roll one die for radiation damage. Level 3. For every 15 minutes you're exposed, roll a die. Level 4. For every 5 minutes, it's a die. Level 5. For every half hour, it's 2 die. Level 6. For every 15 minutes, it's 2 die. Level 7. For every 5 minutes, it's 3 die. Level 8. For every 5 minutes, it's 4 die. Level 9, for every 5 minutes, it's 5 die. And level 10, for every 5 minutes, it's 6 dice. Look, I realize that's not a perfect chart, so feel free to modify it to your own tastes. I have the feeling I'll probably be modifying it once my group gets a look at it. If we look at the chart on page 165, we see that a dose of Radex will give a plus 6 radiation damage resistance, Also, we'll see that Rataway heals for radiation damage. At the moment, the group is in a level 1 radiation zone. They're only going to be here for about 20 minutes or so, then they'll be in a level 2 zone. So what that means for the Radex is that one dose should last them a good couple of hours before another one is needed, and it also means that the Rataway should only be needed every couple of hours, and even then only if they have some serious issues from the radiation. Note also for the record that if you have a ghoul in your party, like I do, this is basically paradise for them because radiation heals them rather than hurts them. So they have no issues with any of this. Okay, so we're wanting to get some actual work done this week, so let's get to it. As I said, we're not riding in an encounter here, so the group should just be walking past the groups watching them, heading for the hunting grounds. They'll go up and down several hills, then they'll have to walk down a hill to walk across the damaged Interstate 55 before walking back up the hill to continue on. But we're going to go without incident here, and that's mostly because we want the group to take in the devastation of the area. I mean, the buildings down here got toasted in the blast. They're used to seeing the shells of buildings, along with the number that are still standing. That didn't happen here. The entire city of Arnold, Missouri got flattened. There's rubble everywhere, 
and they see cars and other vehicles twisted into shapes that one wouldn't believe steel could twist into. The trees that are still around look like something out of a fever dream, and there's not a lot of grass in the city proper. Once they get close to the hunting grounds, they begin to see grass. They also begin to hear gunfire in the distance. Remember, Martin told the group that the Lagerfelds act like they own this hunting ground, so it's probably them out hunting. As they begin to consider their options, they will notice three large radstags about 20 yards away from them, munching on the irradiated grass like nothing's happening. So they've got a choice to make. Shoot them and see if the Lagerfelds show up, or let them go, continue on, and hope they get this kind of shot again. Here's how we're going to break this down. If the group decides to shoot at this group, they will draw a party of men equaling the number of group members when they go to harvest their kill. They are wastelanders, and while we're using the template on page 397, I want to bump them up to level 5 to make them closer in power level with the group. We'll do this by giving each of them 3 extra health points, an extra point in agility, 2 points in melee weapons, a point in small guns, and the shotgun surgeon and gun foo perks. They'll come out and try to intimidate the group off the hunting grounds, and they're going to be all threats. They are, as the group anticipated, members of the Lagerfelds, and it really doesn't matter what the group says. They believe the group is working for the Mitchells. So unless the group hands over their kills and leaves the area, they're going to fight. This shouldn't be an impossible fight for the group to win. They've dealt with meaner than this to this point. However, this may cause them an issue or two down the line when they go to leave. For now, though, once they've finished, they can continue their hunt. Stats for Radstags are on page 352. We could roll to determine how much game they find and how quickly they find it, but if they choose to spread out and be good, quiet hunters, they can find three rad stags for every hour they spend hunting. The amount they can gather is limited only by the amount of time they want to spend in the radiation and by their carrying capacity. Now, if they're going to go looking for Yao Guai, choose one of the group members at random if the group fans to hunt out. That group member will come across a cave as they stalk Radstags. If they check the cave, they'll come across a sleeping Yao Guai, but it won't be sleeping for long once they enter the cave. The stats for Yao Guai are on page 354, and just by glancing at those, it should be obvious that a single character should run away and hope they catch up with some of the rest of the group. If, by chance, the group did not fan out and they're all hunting together in one large group, if the group is larger than four, they will find two Yao Guai. So at this point, we need to take a moment and remember what everything is we're keeping track of here. How long is the group hunting and how does that affect the Radex and or Radaway they're using? How long did the Lagerfeld combat take? Remember, we're going with six second rounds here, so it's probably going to be less than 30 seconds, barring issues. How much daylight is left? The group crossed the river about an hour after dawn, so they should have a good 10 to 12 hours. However, it's a bit darker on this side of the river, and the radiation is to blame for that. So, cut two hours off of that, and the group has eight to ten hours to hunt. Anyway, the group can hunt, and they should be able to get pretty much as much meat as they want to get, provided they're willing to be patient and hunt for it. One thing, though, if, when, they run into the Yao Guai, that accounts for two hours of hunting, since any rad stags in the immediate area are going to run off and be more difficult to find. Okay, so you've got all the information you need to hunt, so happy hunting. And that's where we're going to wrap the build for this week. 
Wait, you mean we're going to wait to do something simple like cross the river till next week? (laughs) Oh, my sweet summer child. What we've got planned for your group next week? Yeah, it's going to be a little bit more than that. We're also going to have a game recap since my group will be back in action for the first time in a month tomorrow night. So make sure you're a part of that as well. In the meanwhile, check out our other podcast, Role-Playing History. This week, we deep dive Earth Dawn, which is a game I think you'll get a kick out of. Role-Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are used on this podcast for entertainment purposes only. For more on the phenomenal products produced by Modifius, check out their website, modiphius.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty-free, license-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. On Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube and Tumblr, it's Bad GM Productions. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com. And online, the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, we try to get our group back to the proper side of the river. And by the way, I just said that. You know I'm not going to make it easy. But that's next week, folks. Until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.